The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the reading of God's word from the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are beautiful, you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman and was ve- that was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt, he dealt with Abram. And he, ke- and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the reading of God's word. Praise be to God. You may be seated this morning. Amen. Good morning. How we doing? Good? Good. Roll Tide. All right. Uh, you had to, had, that had to come, right? So my name is Justin. Welcome to Sacred City Church. If this is your first time here, we just want to greet you and welcome you. Thank you for coming and gathering with us on a Sunday morning. We're a church that gathers one day a week and we scatter the other six days a week uh, throughout the city and missional communities. Um, that's the organiza- organizational structure of our church is missional communities where we do life, where we... Um, preach the gospel to each other. We live in community and on mission with one another throughout the week. So this is just one expression of who we are as the body. And we want to welcome you this morning. We don't do anything fancy. We worship our great God. We profess our faith together. We confess our sins. We hear the word of scripture and we respond with repentance and faith. That's what we do. Um, so that's what we're going to do this morning. And I'm going to go ahead and pray. We're going exegetically and expository through the book of Genesis. Um, we started in verse one, chapter one, verse one, and now we've made it to chapter 12. So we're moving along at a pretty good clip. Um, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your spirit that is here leading and guiding your people. I thank you for your word that has power, that is powerful, um, that it shakes kingdoms and it shapes kings that you place one up and you pull one down all by your sovereignty, all by your authority, all by your power. You are great and we are nothing in your presence, Father. But we thank you for gathering us from the four corners of our city and bringing us here together as your people. We ask that you would speak to us today through your word, that you would use me as your mouthpiece, Father, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that we would be edified, that we would be brought to repentance, that we would be given faith today by your word. We pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In your son's name, amen. All right, well... Last, last week, our study of the book of Genesis turned a very important corner. See, things have been moving along at a pretty quick pace, and we've been in, introduced to dozens of sordid and nuanced characters up until this point. But as we leave chapter 11 behind, 
we're going to now begin to get up close and personal with a few very important characters, okay? So Genesis, the first 11 chapters really has been a wide angle view of God's creation and God's beginning of all things. We've came down and, and we've, we've noticed a couple characters like Cain and Abel and Noah and these guys, but now the, the, the camera lens really after chapter 11, 12 and on, the camera lens really narrows in and we're going to follow the line of Seth. We're going to follow that now into some very um, brutal stories and some interesting stories to say the least, all right? So the rest of the book and actually the rest of the Bible will now move forward from this point in history. God has made a specific and gracious covenant with a Babylonian moon worshiper named Abram. Historically, this covenant is roughly made about 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Last week, we saw how the covenant was gracious. Abram didn't deserve it. He was an idol-worshiping, demon-worshiping man. That it was radical. It told Abram, you have to leave everything you know. And follow me, put your hand in mine and walk with me. And it was missional. He was, God was going to make him a light to the nations. God was going to bless the world through his seed. God was going to multiply him for the world. So it was gracious, it was radical, and it was missional. Today we're, I want to take a quick look at some of the details. Now we're going, to, we're going to get to this more later. I'm just going to hit a couple details of that covenant. When God called Abram, if you remember, he, he promised to lead him into the land. This is the quote, the land that I will show you. That's what God said. Now, this is a very significant promise. The theme of the land is spoken of in various ways over 400 times in the book of Genesis. Over 400 times. God created the land and everything in it. Man sinned and then God cursed the land. God then sent man away from the perfect land that was in the garden. Cain, when he killed his brother Abel, he buried him where? In the land. Noah is saved by building an ark from God's flooding of the land. And then when Noah gets off the boat, he becomes a man of the land by becoming a winemaker. As you can see, the land has played a very important role up until this point in Genesis, and that role is only going to get more pronounced. See, God promises Abram a land for his lineage to possess. He promises him a specific people and a place. This land in the, in the scriptures, this land will be known as the promised land or as the land of Canaan. And around this stretch of land, there have been political and military conflict raging that continues to this very day in the Middle East. So this is a significant promise with significant implications, even implications for us today. Turn on the news. You're going to see it. We're going to get an up-close-and-personal look today at how all this war and bloodshed over a stretch of real estate began. So, if you remember from last week in our study, God spoke to Abram. He sent him out on mission and blessed him in that mission. He told Abram that he would multiply him and make his name great. Now, 
that has happened. But the temptation, whoa, the temptation for us here is to think of Abram as some kind of hero who was somehow different from us. He was made from something special. He was sometimes floated down from heaven in his mother's womb, and then he, he lived this perfect life, and we should all emulate this boy or man named Abram. But the Bible, you see, the only problem with that is the Bible, okay? Kids ministry, they'll teach you that, right? You grow up, Father Abraham had many, right? And I am one of them. Like we all proud to be fathers or, or sons of father, sons or daughters of Father Abraham, right? Except the Bible has room for one hero. The Bible tarnishes the reputation of everybody else. See, if the story ends right where we left off last week, Abram would look pretty good. God spoke, he left everything and followed God. Great story, the end. Everybody go be like Abram. But thankfully for us, and to the chagrin of Abram, the story continues. See, God has called Abram, listen to this. God has called Abram as a moon worshiper, as a pagan, as an unbeliever. God has called him, but now God has to break him. God has chosen his tool, and now he needs to fashion that tool to make it fit for service in the hand of the Almighty. A.W. Tozer has said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It is doubtful if God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And we're going to watch. We're going to watch God begin to whittle away at Abram. It's going to be a slow and painful process but it's a necessary process. God, like he promises to do with all of us, listen to this, God is going to go to war with Abram's idolatry. God will not sit along the side and let Abram worship himself, let him walk in pride, let him live in, a sin, in sinful idolatry. God is going to go to war with Abram's, the idols of Abram's heart. So, Abram, to the credit of the grace of God, he obeys and he leaves his homeland, he leaves his people, he leaves his father's house, and he takes off to go where God said he would show him to go. Abram, the end of chapter or seven, eight, nine of chapter 12, Abram sojourns in Canaan a while. So God brings him to this land of promise. God brings him to Canaan, the land that he's going to give him, the land that he's going to give his descendants, the land where he's going to bless him. And Abraham sojourns a while. He builds a couple places to worship. Things are going really well for Abram. He obeyed God. He got to the promised land. He's working around there, building some altars and places to worship God. Things are looking pretty good. But then something troubling happens. And we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. You can follow along with us in your Bible. Uh, we also have um, a Sacred City app that you can go to on your iPhone or Android or whatever. And you can also download our liturgy from version if you uh, just search under the live link there. Uh, uh, chapter 12, Genesis 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. Wouldn't you know it? 
Surprise, surprise. God says, follow me. Abram says, I'm coming. I follow you. He follows him. Things are looking pretty good. And then right now, here comes a famine. Write that down. Inscribe that in your mind. Inscribe that on the walls of your soul. God promised, God tells him, come. He goes and now comes a famine. You're going to need that someday. See, the blessing of God led him straight into a famine. A life-changing experience with God was followed up by a test in the desert. Does that sound familiar? This reminds us, right, of the baptism of Jesus. Jesus gets baptized by John and God speaks from heaven, declaring and approving of his son's identity. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then the spirit leads him out into the desert to fast and be tempted by Satan for 40 days. But when it happens to us, we're shocked. I'm I'm going to church. I thought going to church was going to fix my marriage, not make it worse. I thought it was going to make my life easier, not more complicated. Hebrews 5.8 says, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. See, God leads his people into and through difficulty. It is his way of making us fit for his service. Jesus, it says in in Hebrews 5, 9, that he was made perfect through his suffering. Now that's crazy because we know Jesus was already perfect, but some way he was made a perfect human through his suffering. And we will be made more like his son through our pain, through the famine, through our suffering. It's the pain caused by the woodworker's chisel. It's the pain caused by the iron worker's fire. It's the pain caused by the potter's hands as he shapes the vessel to his will. The pain isn't meant to kill you. The pain isn't meant to destroy you. The pain is meant to bring out the new creation that's hidden inside. Right? The rumor is that, you know, someone asked Michelangelo how he took that big block of marble or granite or whatever it was and chiseled Michelangelo out of it. And he said, all I, I, you know, the rumor is all I did was knock away everything that wasn't him. That's what God is doing to us through his spirit, through difficulty, through pain, through suffering. It's the woodworker's chisel. It's the ironworker's fire. It's the potter's hands. So right now, Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. How, does, how is Abram going to respond to this test? He goes where he's supposed to go and things get difficult. Let's look how he's going to respond. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. He went down. Those words are going to mean more to you in a little bit than they do right now. Things are about to go down. Abram's 
Abram's about to go down, literally. He's about to, he's about to screw something up big time. He's going to go down to Egypt. So basically he says, this is tough. This is too difficult, God. What happened? I followed your will. I got where you are and things are difficult. The money's driving, drying up. The rains have stopped. Business is getting tight. Things are getting lean. My wife's getting short with me. My kids look at me like I'm crazy, right? Things are getting difficult around here. And then I think, and he, th- he starts thinking, I think I'm going to go down. I'm going to go down to Egypt. There's rivers in Egypt. The land is plentiful in Egypt. There's, there's you know, the, the, the river flows and it, it's well irrigated in Egypt. I'm going to go there. It's going to be easier for me in Egypt. Hmm. Did God tell him to leave? Or do we know that God told him to leave? Did God say, now, now go on. A, I, this promised land thing was just, psych, right? Let's go to Egypt. No, absolutely not. The famine did. I know what God said, but... How many times... No, listen, I just know you. Okay, because I know me. <laughs> yeah, that's what the Bible says. But he doesn't know who I'm married to, right? He doesn't know the bills that we have. He doesn't, see, see, I was raised on that side of the tracks and then because I had to earn my own education, I had to pay for I got school loans. So, so that's that, but this is me. Is that not what we do, right? In community, on mission, well, but I could just go other places and just chill. I think I'll do that. I'll go to Egypt. Now, I know I'm not talking about anybody in here, but there's some other people that are like that. <clears throat> so, here we go. Let's keep going. So, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, but for the famine was severe in the land. So, he just lets us know twice here that he's not following God. He's following his stomach. He's following his what he can see in himself. The, the famine is pushing him to Egypt, not the will of God necessarily, okay? When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, oh, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. Stop. Now, Abraham stops traveling with the city in view, okay? He's headed to Egypt now. He's turned the horses. He's turned the camels. He turned, you know, the donkeys. He turned everything around. He's pointed himself outside of the promised land. He's leaving the promised land. He's going to what looks comfortable to him. He's going to Egypt, and now he stops with the city in view. And he makes this awful deal with his wife. Now, Sarah, the Bible says, was gorgeous, all right, and we're gonna ha- we're gonna find out later that she obviously was okay, and this is pretty crazy because she's like sixty five years old at the time. All right, so Sarah is the world's hottest old lady. Let's just get it out there. She's a ten. All right, she's a ten. Now listen, when he was about to enter the land, says he's about to enter, so he's got the city in view. He's gonna make this deal with his wife. <laughs> now, ladies, with any experience, no. When your husband starts out with, you are a woman and you are beautiful. Something bad's about to take place, right? I just, you know, locked a child in a car or something. Like, you are so beautiful. And, you know, I did buy that bass boat uh, that we talked, you know, like, like, right? Something bad is coming on the backside of this. He's warming her up. He's, you know, he's, pump, he's priming her a little bit to try to, something bad's coming on the back end of this deal. You are, did I ever tell you, you are beautiful, She's like, oh, this is about to go bad. 
right? And that's exactly what happens. Verse 12. I know, well, he says, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. Now listen, this is definitely not Abram's shining moment. You can tell that he's afraid. This is fear driving him. They're gonna, she's smoking hot. They're going to kill me and take her. Right? And it's not like chivalrous, like, you are so beautiful. I don't want them to take you. This is like he's scared of it. He, he's saving his own skin. He's scheming. See, he believes the Egyptians will get one look at his beautiful wife and they will take him out so they can have her. So much of men's problems stem from them being afraid and not knowing what to do with that fear. I'm afraid the business is going to fail. I'm afraid I'm going to look stupid around my colleagues. I'm afraid that you're going to not, if I'm vulnerable around my wife, she won't respond and love me. So I better act a man. I better scheme. I better figure out a way around this thing. So we do what men do. We lay in our bed all night long and we toss and we turn and we scheme. And then after we figure it out, then we're like, okay, how can I sell this to my wife? She's smarter than me. She's going to see through this, (laughs) right? Abram is afraid to suffer loss. He's been given a beautiful wife. He's got a call of God on his life. God's made a covenant with him. And he doesn't want to lose that. It's weird. Because God promises it to him. God's faithfulness to his own covenant would keep him safe and would provide for him. But instead, he lets his fear cause him to fail to trust God and instead take things into his own hands. I can't trust God. I can trust me, my schemes. I imagine Abram, Abram is in heaven right now going, oh, he's going to preach this. Oh, man. Not his shining moment. God's promise was, remember this, God's promise to Abraham was go and trust me and I'll show you where to go. Put your hand in mine and I will lead you. But Abram is not confident in where this plan is headed right now. I put my hand in yours, famine. I'm not confident with where you're leading me right now, God. I don't know if you know what's best for my life. First the famine and now the powerful Egyptians. Abram is afraid and instead of trusting God, he schemes. Listen, the fear of man, being afraid what man can do to you, being afraid of the opinions of man, the fear of man is incompatible with faith in God. Incompatible. So the scheme of Abrams is a white lie gone terribly bad. See, Sarah was his half-sister, but Abram convinces her to act like they're just brother and sister and not 
husband and wife. <clears throat> this is bad. This is just bad. Abram is self-infatuated and self-protective men. He's worried about his own skin men. He's still looking out for number one men. See, Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that a godly husband is to graciously lay his life down for his wife like Jesus did for the church. Men, we are called by God to throw ourselves down on the barbed wire fence so that our wives can get across. That's what we're called to do by God. That's your purpose. Lay down your life for your wife. But Abram does what so many of us men do on a daily basis. He lets his fear override his faith and his wife takes the hit. Abram pimps out his wife to save his own skin. Father Abraham had many sons. What? Did you get that in Sunday school? Does this make you proud to be a son of Father Abraham? Right? (laughs) Oh, you mean the father of our faith, of the Jews, the Muslim, and the Christians? Oh, he pimps out his wife. You proud of that? Hmm? I'm going to march out of here. Listen, this is one reason why we have to have and we need to have a gospel-centered or Jesus-centered lens when reading and interpreting the Bible, especially the Old Testament. The main point of this text is not to go out and act like Abram. Please don't. Abram completely blows it here. He shows us exactly what we shouldn't do. This story just breaks my heart, man. It breaks my heart because it's replayed in so many homes every single day. God created men to lay down their needs and lay down their desires and to provide for and protect and to nurture and to love their wives in such a way that they wash them with the water of the word and they cause their wives to flourish in the homes where they live. But instead, instead of doing that, Abram doesn't lay down his life. He chooses to have his wife lay down her life in the bed of other men so that he can sit back and stay safe. Wicked. Verse 14, let's keep going. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful And when the princes of Pharaoh, now Pharaoh isn't a name. Pharaoh literally means king. It's the king of Egypt. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So she was obviously smoking hot, right? Her name literally means princess. So she obviously was as beautiful as a princess. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram.
And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So, Abram's wife becomes one of Pharaoh's wives or concubines. Abram, what are you doing? We've got children's Bibles to write here. Right? He's in Egypt, pimping out his wife. What? Just let me throw this out. What's the moral of this story? Right? You're sitting down at bedtime. You come to this in the Bible. <laughs> right? How does this go for you at bedtime? So Abram, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, you know, Hebrews says he's, he's, you know, one of the founders of our faith and he's in the hall of faith in Hebrews. But, um, hmm. how are you going to spin this, dad? What are you doing with this? What's Abram doing right now? You want to know what Abram's doing? You know what he's doing? He's got custom rims on his chariot, right? He's got ice in his ear. He's got a 90-inch flat screen. He's got servants. His servants have servants. He's living it up. He's enjoying everything the world in Egypt has to offer. But who's paying for it all? Sarai is paying. She's got the bill. His wife is earning this paycheck. I'm just going to throw this out there, men. If your wife wants to stay at home and raise your kids, it is your job to make that happen. It's so easy and almost expected. No, not almost. It is expected in this day and age for our wives to work outside the home so that we can have more stuff. If your wife wants, and I'm saying wives have to stay at home. That's not what I'm saying at all. If your wife wants to stay at home, you've got to do whatever it takes to make that happen. Get your education, work two jobs, work three jobs, do what you have to do. I know it's not easy. I know from experience, it's not easy. Amanda worked outside the home until we had our firstborn, Javin. And it was really, really nice getting that paycheck every two weeks from her job. We literally lived off of my income and then her income. We could buy clothes and do fun things with. It was nice to have that discretionary income coming from her salary. But she wanted to stay at home. And I wanted her to be able to stay at home. I wanted her to be able to love and train and raise up our children and not ship them off to daycare or have somebody else raise and train my child. That I've been given a covenant responsibility to train them and build them up in the Lord inside the covenant family of God. That's been given to me, not the public school system, not to any other school system, not to the daycare or the babysitter. That's been given to me as my job. But that's hard, isn't it? And what we see here in this moment is Abram has gotten comfortable in Egypt. Abram is settling into his sin. He's living high on the hog. How shameful. How shameful. He sold out his wife for his own comfort and wealth. Verse 17. But the Lord 
afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? You hear that? Pharaoh is not like having a peaceful discussion here. He's just asking questions. He already knows the answers to, and bam, he's going to send them out. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. This is pointing to something that's going to happen down the road, if you know anything about Exodus, right? Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, one thing I want you to see here is that even though Abram is not trusting God, God is still in control. There's a lot of confusion around this. A lot of confusion where people, well, how does God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and man's sin enter into the equation? Listen, God is sovereign over it all. He's in control of it all. And right now, God is using, God used a famine to get Abram into Egypt. And now he's going to use the affliction that he places on Pharaoh's house, the affliction to get him back out of Egypt. God's providence brought them into Egypt and now God's providence will lead them out of Egypt. See, Abram won't obey. God will take, so God will take things into his own hands and make sure that his people will get out of Egypt. Man, that is encouraging to me. When, ladies, I hope that's encouraging to you. I hope in this story you can see the hand of a gracious God who loves you far more than your sinful husband could ever hope to. If you've been married to a weak and selfish man, and we're all weak and selfish in some ways, but if you're married to a man who consistently seeks his own wealth and his own comfort at your expense, God sees that. He's aware of your suffering. He knows how difficult things can be and he doesn't want you to place your trust in that man. He wants you to place your trust and your confidence in him who is sovereign over all things. See, our hope is in him, not our spouse, not our circumstances. Abram didn't care though, right? He was self-infatuated. He was consumed with his own stuff. The game is on. I've got to go fishing. Got the buddies coming in. I'm busy. I've got the softball team coming up, the flag football league and the bowling league. And I need to go work in my office. I need. Men have been hiding from their responsibilities for a long time. Right, men? We do it in the garage, we do it in the yard. Do it at work. We do it in the television. We do it in video games. We do it in sports. We're hiding. And men, listen, I know that you're hiding because most of the time it could be just you're incredibly selfish and just not worried about anything of yourself, but mo- not worried about anyone other than yourself. But most of the time, we just don't know what the heck we're supposed to do. And I'll tell you what, I can get to level 50 in Call of Duty. I know how to do that. I know how to fix the mower. 
I know how to organize the garage. I know how to build a business. I can do that. Shepherding my wife? Question mark. Leading my children? Big question mark. All right? Thought I had the first one figured out, and then the second one came along, and now I got to start over. All right? Got, got those two kind of under control, and now the third one pops up, and I am lost. Right? Every, different human, different soul, completely different, handmade by God in different ways. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I, I, but I'm, I'm clinging. I'm trying to cling to the hand of an almighty God who does. That everything in scripture is sufficient for raising my children. I don't need self-help and, you know, psychology. I don't need all these things. I need the scripture. I need, where is God leading us as a family? So men, out of fear, we don't know what to do. We go and hide. Abram is hiding in Egypt. And here's the thing, men. It kind of works, right? Like he's comfortable. The business is going well. The money's coming in. The house, we moved up the house. The wife's kind Well, no, she's probably not satisfied at all right now, right? She's paying for it. God's called you men to step into insecurity, to step into uncertainty, to step into darkness and just place your hand in him and not have it figured out and not know what to do and not know the next step to take and just step towards your wife and say, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to handle this, but this is how I'm feeling right now. I need your advice. I need your help. It's weak. It's weakness, men. It's weakness. And it's meant to be shared with our wife. But we see here that our salvation, thank God, our salvation rests in his sovereign grace and not in the strength or ability of our faith or our nature or our ability to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Abram is a fool. He's living comfortably in his sin. But his salvation ultimately depends upon the gracious hand of God and not on his fickle faith or his half-hearted obedience. The same is true for us. So what is God? God steps down into the midst. God moves. God's hand moves the pieces across the board. Abraham won't come out. Abraham won't obey. Abraham's stuck in his sin. So God reaches down and afflicts the Egyptians. And the Egyptians, right? Pharaoh, I can just see Pharaoh... Pharaoh wakes up one day and he's itching, right? The night before, he's with Abraham's wife. He puts two and two together, right? What? I don't know. Okay, where, where's your husband? You got a husband? She, I knew something. Abraham, take her and go. God does it. Abraham doesn't come to his senses. Abraham doesn't see the depths of his sin and then respond in faith and repentance. God moves him. Oh, sovereignty of God. I... Thank you, Jesus. I'm so thankful that our salvation rests in his hand and not in our, not in our fickle faith. But this is it's going to bring up a good point, see? See, like Abram, our culture 
has this obsession with material wealth. We have this obsession with what we consider success. See, people consider whether you're successful or not by the car you drive and the clothes you wear and, and this, the gadgets in your pocket. People consider churches successful by their facilities and how many people are attending. They think that God's blessing looks like material success. But here God shows us, I hope you see this, God shows us the exact opposite. God's blessing was in the land of famine and not in the wealthy halls of Pharaoh. At Pharaoh's house, everything feels like a success. This guy, Pharaoh believed he was God or a God. He's got money, he's got women, he's got everything you want. Abram's getting blessed, right? He's got camel servants, more servants. He's got all this stuff. When God says, my blessing isn't there. My blessing's in the land of famine. Our success, we see, we, 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 our compass needs to be reprogrammed. We need to be recalibrated. Our success company compass is so often pointed in the wrong direction. And what we're going to see coming in the coming weeks is how this wealth and prosperity that Abram got in Egypt, he got it in sin. He got in a place where he was not supposed to go. This wealth is going to create a huge problem for him. And what he thought was a blessing is going to end up to be a curse. Let me just give you two ways that's going to happen. His abundance of livestock and servants are going to force him and his crazy nephew Lot to split up the promised land between them. And that's going to lead to some serious drama. Second one, while in Egypt, his wife gets this uh, pretty young thing named Hagar. And that is going to go very badly. Abram is going to hook up with her later and, the, and her subsequ- subsequent offspring will be the Arabs that will fight the Israelites over the rights to the promised land. This Hagar, Sarai picks her up in Egypt. Later down the road, I'm just going to give you a little prequel. Sarai, she's really old. She can't have babies. She's barren. So she says, hey, Abram, take Hagar. And Abram, being the stellar man of God, says, okay. <laughs> right? And, he gives, and, she gives, and Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. Right? And this is going to lead to very bad places. So what Abram thought, Abram's comfortable, man. Abram is comfortable. He couldn't see the consequences of his sin when he was in Egypt. He's just chilling. His wife's picking up the tab and he's chilling, getting rich. He didn't recognize how his behavior would affect his family and literally millions of people after him. He was completely blinded by the glitz. This is us. I'm just going to tell you that. This is us. It's, it's hard. It feels like, uh, you know, fighting the culture of consumerism that says success is more. It's always more of whatever it is. It feels like you're, you're, you're paddling a canoe up a, a level f- five rapids, upstream a level five rapids. 
going against the culture, trying to live meager, trying to be givers, trying not to define ourselves by what we have. It's hard. It's difficult in our culture. The, The Kardashian lifestyle is incompatible with the life of faith. Incompatible. Two different identities. Two different foundations. I'm reminded of what God said to Cain before he killed his brother Abel. He said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. It's there. It's real. It wants to take you down. The desire for success, the desire for more, the desire for money, the desire for an identity outside of Christ, it's there. It's going to pounce on you, but you must rule over it. Right? John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be actively fighting sin with the gospel of Jesus Christ or sin will be corrupting and killing you. There is no... What happens if you're in a stream? What happens if you stop paddling? You go where the current takes you. Our culture is pushing you somewhere. You can't just hop in and hope to end up where God has you. He empowers us to paddle, to fight against the push and pull and the current of our culture with the word of God. He says, I want you to be different. I want you to go somewhere that I will lead you. It might not be a place of material abundance right away. It might look like a land of famine right away. It might be difficult. It might be a desert. It might be a tough place in a a relationship. I want you to go there, put your hand in mine and go through it with me. And if you paddle and if you fight... It's going to take everything you've got to believe the gospel. It's going to take everything you've got to trust in Christ's righteousness on your behalf. And that's the life of faith. Now, what are we going to do with Abe? Right? What are we going to do with Abe here? If you grew up in a moralistic home, or if you've, if you've been taught that Christians are the good people, then this text is really going to mess you up. Is Abram a good guy in the story? Is Abram a good guy in the story? Abram doesn't get to wear the white hat, right? Moralistic people think that life is like a Western. The good guys wear the white hats and the bad guys wear the black hats. And all you got to do is change your hat. You want to be, I want to be a good guy. I'm going to put a white hat on. Live like a white hat guy. It's not Christianity. It's not reality. Now listen, I'm going to ask you this. Is this before or after Abram has been called, chosen, and sent on a mission by God? After. Oops. Oops. 
Listen, it's really tempted, tempting for us to fall into moralism. But Abram's story needs to snap us back into a gospel reality. Abram was a wicked sinner before God called him, and Abram was a wicked sinner still after God called him. Now, yes, the... God is wielding his chisel. God has put him in the fire. God is shaping him and molding him. But Abram is still wicked. Maybe he's not as wicked. I don't know as he was. But God is molding and shaping him and moving him on and moving him along. And we're going to consistently see Abraham acts in faith. Abraham blows it big. And we are just like Abram. And I'm sorry if a preacher has told you that if you come to Jesus Christ, now you live this almost perfect life from now on. And you got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And I mean, the funny stuff, be like David. No, 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 wait. Adultery kills what? No, no, don't be like David. There's one hero in the Bible. Now listen, this is a quote people like to put on shirts and people like Gandhi's the one who said it. I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. And we, we might go, that's true. I don't like Christians. Either. Well, I mean, I, well, most, I don't like other Christians. Right? But listen, that's an incredibly moralistic statement. See, it's anti-gospel. If you understood the gospel, you would know that Christians believe themselves to be so bad that they had to be saved by Jesus Christ. At the core, at the bottom, they're wicked. A Christian believes himself to be capable of great sin. So much so they have to, nothing can save me but the righteousness of Christ. Nothing can save me but the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how bad I am. Christians can openly admit that we are sinners and that we need the grace of Jesus Christ to save us and to sanctify us and make us into his image. Christians do and have done awful things throughout history. Just like non-Christians have. Why? Because they're sinners who are only saved by the gracious hand of a sovereign God. That doesn't, no, listen, that doesn't give them a pass or excuse their sin in any way. But Christians aren't the good people and every other, everybody else on the planet are the bad people. Christians are the people who openly admit that they are the bad people. They were born with a black hat and they would never take the black hat off ever except God by his grace reached down in his sovereign grace and removed it and put on the white hat of the precious blood and righteousness of Christ. God did it, not me. I respond in faith, yes, but he's given it to me. Jesus Christ is the only true hero of the Bible. He's the only one who doesn't blow it. He's the only one who stays completely free from sin. And I hope we can look at our text today with some gospel-centered lenses and it will give us a greater appreciation for our need of a Savior and of God's provision of that Savior. See, like Abram, 
Jesus also made a deal with a city in view. Abram gave up his wife to save himself. And Jesus gave up himself to save his bride, the church. See, Abram got rich off the deal. Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. And what we read today, the Egyptians bore the judgment and the affliction from God caused by Abram's sin. But in the gospel, Jesus bears the judgment of God and is afflicted in himself because of our sins and his body on the cross. See, Jesus is the only hope for Abram. Abram's not doesn't become Abraham and isn't the father of our faith because he's good. All those things are because Christ is so good. Jesus is also the only hope for us here today. We say it a lot around here. In the gospel, you are worse than you ever thought possible. But you are also simultaneously more loved than you have ever dared to hope. And I plead with you, don't try to hold on to a string or or a, a piece of your old life. Don't talk yourself out of embracing Christ and believing the gospel by saying, I'm not that bad. I've never pimped out my wife. I would never do something like that. See your sin for what it is in whatever, whatever way it is, however it manifests itself in your life. Your own righteousness, your own ways to appease God and please him and make him happy. They're filthy rags in his sight. Only the precious blood of Christ can cover you. And that blood, once it covers you, it invites you into community and it sends you out on mission. It motivates you. It fills you. It empowers you to live this new life of faith where when you blow it big, you can admit it to your community. You can admit your weakness to your wife. You can repent to your father. That's what it does. Our faith makes us strong, but it also makes us weak. Makes us... The strength is shown in the freedom to be weak. I don't need to justify myself. I don't need to make people happy. I can say what God's called me to say because I don't need anybody's approval because the Father approves of me in Christ. I've heard his voice say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So I don't need anyone else to say, he's a good preacher, he's a good pastor. I like that guy pretty good. I don't need it. Neither do you if you're in Christ. You don't need your big business to tell you you're a success. You don't need your bank account to prove to you that you have worth. You don't need that guy on your arm, ladies, to prove that you have value. Your father gives that to you. Your gracious father. You don't have to earn it or prove it. It's given to you by a gift of grace. Just like 
the Father gave us in the Lord's Supper. It's all grace. Been provided for us, been prepared for us, and all we do is receive it. Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work in this room. Pray that you would convict sinners, that you would bring them to repentance, you would give them faith, that they would turn from their old life, they would turn from their idols, they would turn from the other things that try to give them meaning, and they would graciously respond to you in your sovereign grace. I pray for the believers in this room who struggle to believe the gospel on a daily basis myself included, that I struggle to find my identity solely and entirely in you and what you've done for me, that you would communicate grace to us as well, that we would take in your body, that we would drink in your blood, that you would empower us and motivate us and remind us of your gift, and you would move us out into mission, that you would do a great work in your body. Thank you, Jesus being so much better than Abram. He gave up his wife to save his life and you gave up your life to save your wife, the church. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for your spirit that's present here today. Thank you for your body that was broken your blood that was shed. In Jesus' name, amen.